Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. John, why don't we get started here from Washington, these meetings of the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, and also the IIF, which is the gathering of global bankers. We start strong with Catherine Mann this hour of Citigroup, their chief economist, and of course, definitive in international economics. Catherine, let me give you an open question to start. As you line up your essay for Monday, what is the theme you're grabbing onto among these three meetings? Well, I think there's some differences in views that you get when going to these three meetings. Um, the bankers are talking about uh, what's going on in the markets. Uh, there's just a bit of a puzzlement, for example, between what the bond market is telling us, uh, projecting pretty much a, a sorry state for, for the rest of the year and into 2020. On the other hand, equities look pretty good, as you say, very, very close to highs. And so they're telling very the markets themselves are telling very different stories about 2020. So that's what's happening over at IAF. Uh, on the other hand, over at the IMF, there's a much more balanced discussion about uh, monetary policy and fiscal policy, the emphasis on fiscal policy having to complement the monetary policy accommodation that's been yeah. in place for some time now. So, so you're, you know, we've got a, a more, uh, more macro view over at the IMF and a more finance view over at the IIF, and, and that makes sense. How does currency? They should, talk, they should talk to each other, though. They, well, it they would should. be better if they talked more to each other. That would be impossible, as one is at the Ronald <laughs> Reagan building and the other equidistant right. past the White House on the other yep. side. Catherine Mann, there's a monetary and fiscal solution, but all of that runs around currency dynamics. And as John knows too well, the one euro, the one euro that's out mm-hmm. there, is the euro a threat still? Is that even part of the discussion? What do you mean, the sort of the, the threat does? The, the, the one-euro concept. Euro I, mean, I mean, London's breaking no, up. No, London's no. saying goodbye. No. Yeah, but, but London isn't part of the euro. So, no. I mean, that, that, that never was, you know, we, we didn't have a divorce there because there wasn't a marriage there. So that's, uh, that's that. So um, I, I think that the, the, anybody who's betting on a breakup of the euro is making a really bad bet. Um, if anything, the euro area is is moving towards uh, a better understanding uh, and consolidation of the policies. I think you hear more voices, consistent voices uh, within Europe um, about monetary policy stance, but also about fiscal. Um, so, uh, you know, I'd say if anything, this is this uh, period of time is is uh, very positive for the euro uh, as a as a currency and for Europe as an area. They need to they need to get it together and actually produce the fiscal uh, side of things. Structural policies are part of fiscal policy, and that's been talked about for a long time as well. But I think that the, I th- I do have a sense that that there's more um, there's more sense in yeah we're going to get this done. When I talk to the Europeans, they say yeah we're going to get this done. So let's talk about what is harming the European economy right now, arguably the trade dispute between the Chinese and the United States. And Catherine, Mm -hmm. I'd love your insight on the GDP print we had from China overnight. The slowest growth since the 1990s, that's the headline, but it's still 6%. And 6% by any standard coming off a bigger and bigger base is pretty impressive. When you look below the surface, beneath the surface at the moment, Catherine, the composition of that GDP figure, is there anything to be concerned about, anything to be encouraged by in the Chinese economy at the moment? 
Well, I think you're doing the, exactly the right thing. I mean, increasingly, GDP is not telling us the things we need to know about an economy. And that's not just true uh, in the case of the China, uh, China data, but more broadly, uh, looking at all of the economies these days, uh, you know, you've got very different uh, things happening on the domestic side, consumption and investment relative to trade. And we're seeing that play out for China as well. Uh, consumption and industrial production are still pretty good. Fixed investment, the roads, bridges, houses, that sort of thing, that's weaker. And of course, trade is weaker. So it's really important to, to decompose GDP into components and look at each one of them individually. Uh, the consumption um, is a key ingredient to the transition uh, in the Chinese economy away from the export-led and, and heavy investment-led strategy. Uh, it's been a very challenging um, thing for them to do, to make this adjustment, to make this uh, transition towards more consumer-based economy. Um, it's a tough time to do it now because of concerns about employment and, and employment security and precautionary household savings is, is, uh, is a a challenge for policy effectiveness, but you know I think they're moving they're moving in that direction, and uh, we see it in the data. Consumption as a share of GDP is higher. Looking at the data, though, Catherine, the trade surplus is higher as well. It's higher because the import mm-hmm. numbers are rolling off. I think yeah. there's a worry at this point that the policy response so far from the Chinese has been very limited, very gradual, and very targeted, and the spillover to the rest of the world has been equally very limited. How do you think the policy response evolves in the coming months? Well, so there, uh, one should, you know, one would like to have a, a, gra- a gradual policy response if what you're trying to do is gradually wean the economy off of excess debt. And of course, financial stability and financial leverage is still a concern internally in China. So you have to move gradually. Um, it would be nice if they had a little bit more effective uh, consumption uh, policies, because as I say, precautionary household savings uh, tends to make consumer-based policies less effective in terms of uh, less traction, lower multipliers. Uh, so a little bit more on that side, I think, would be uh, warranted. They have a number of other possibilities up their sleeve that are more targeted, yeah. again, something like cash for clunkers. So, um, you know, they're they're kind of following the right path. Um, now, with imports being down, you know, that's partly because exports are down as well. You know, keep in mind that as a center piece of the global value chain, uh, you know, if your exports are uh, are being targeted and have, have – uh, have tariffs on them, then, you know, your exports are going to be uh, reduced and so your imports go down as well. And also some of the uh, movement away from China as the center part of the GVCs and global value chains moving uh, to other countries uh, in the face of the tariffs, that also is going to lead to a, a uh, structural yeah. uh, reduction in, in imports. This has been wonderful. Catherine Mann, thank you so much for thank joining you, Bloomberg Surveillance this morning. Catherine Mann is the chief economist at Citigroup. This is a joy, John. This is Jacob Frankel. He has been a wonderful supporter of Bloomberg on the Economy and Bloomberg Surveillance. He's chairman of J.P. Morgan Chase International. But far more, he has an experience and a resonance that many can talk about, but few do. And I want to take a pause here and review that with uh, Dr. Frankel. Uh, Long ago and far away, in amongst your 34 consecutive meetings here in Washington, there was... August of 1991, you took public service in Israel as Bank of Governor with inflation of 21%. And it wasn't just copying Paul Volcker's playbook. 
you single-handedly brought down Israel inflation, and many would suggest, including the five prime ministers you served for, you single-handedly saved the economy. What was the distinction of lowering inflation long ago and far away? A very clear compass. When you do policy, you don't have to ask, what do I do now and what do I do tomorrow? But the first question is, where do I want to end my journey? And the determination was to end the journey with stable prices. Now, but this was part of a broader strategy. This was a year in which there was a huge, massive influx of immigrants Mm -hmm. from the former Soviet Union to the Israeli economy. They needed to be absorbed. The way you, you absorb them created a choice. Should they be absorbed by the public sector, which will be bloated, or in the marketplace? Well, they just escaped a system where the public sector betrayed, and therefore it had to be in the marketplace. But how do you create a market when you do not have yet a market? You needed to have a price stability. You needed to open the market to international a competition, and to bring right. capital to the country. So it was part of a comprehensive strategy. And what is so important here is the exogenous shock of the Russian immigrants to Israel. Bring it forward to 2020 and 2021, where there's this desperate cry to reflate. What is the Frankel formula with your experience of how you reflate a global system, given these rifts, these shocks that we have? While to stabilize the economy, you needed to have combination of monetary tightness together with fiscal policy and structural policy, those policies that remove distortions and create productivity. The opposite is also the same. Namely, you cannot reflate just by looking at one policy instrument. It is the problem of the last decade has been that monetary policy has been the only game in town, and we are paying the price for it now. The system is completely out of balance. Interest rates are much too low relatively to the need of the long-run economy. Keeping interest rates low for too long creates distortions. It creates incentives to take too much risk. It creates incentives to take too much leverage. It creates incentives to bloat the financial markets at the expense of the real economy. But then what is the institution or the will of a nation to get off the opioid of negative interest rates? I mean, you, Volkert Landau at Deutsche Bank, many others are saying enough. It was an experiment. Here we are now chronic in our experiment. What's the executionable institution that will write this ship? Again, first of all, the compass. The st- there is a different rule in medicine when you are in the emergency room and when you are in the rehabilitation center. In the emergency room, you take measures that you know are designed to save the patient. You are aware of the fact that they are not sustainable, and therefore you know already at the beginning, that there must be a path to move this patient to the rehabilitation center. Mm -hmm. This was the story of 2008, 2009. The world was in an emergency room. We needed to have easy monetary policy. We needed to have low interest rates. 
And now, a decade after, we are still there. And therefore, we need to ask, how do we mobilize other policy instruments? Okay. Do you know what the best part of this interview was? We didn't mention Brexit. Jacob Frankel, thank you so much. He is uh, the chairman of J.P. Morgan Chase International. There are a lot of people that think the DUP won't come round to this in the next 24 yeah, hours. That's yeah. their view. Will we get enough voters coming from, say, Labour to help support the Prime Minister? Unclear. A man that can help us out, I'm pleased to say, joins us on the phone from London now, Mushtaba Rahman, Eurasia Group Managing Director for Europe. Mushtaba, great to have you with us on the programme. Let's talk about it. The path to 320. Let's crunch the numbers. How does the Prime Minister get there? It's very difficult. Uh, it's looking quite challenging, I think. The key issue for us is that the DUP at the moment remains unconvinced and opposed to the deal. And as long as that remains the case, we estimate that Boris Johnson needs at least 15 to 20 Labour MPs to help deliver the deal. Interestingly, uh, Boris Johnson told his cabinet that as long as the DUP was on board, they could expect a majority of plus one. If you then subtract the DUP from that equation, it basically raises the number of MPs Boris needs to deliver the deal to around 20. So he needs 15 to 20 Labour MPs at the moment. I don't think he's got that number. So I think we're looking at narrow defeat. Are we assuming the European Research Group votes with the Prime Minister, that the Conservatives vote as an entire bloc? I think the ERG, look, none of these blocks in Parliament is homogenous. I think we have to say that the DUP is not, the ERG is not, the Labour Party is not. These are, there are many competing pressures on individual MPs. The ERG and the DUP were suspected to have very close links. So we thought, depending on the way the, way the DUP votes, that could in turn trigger a mass exodus from the ERG. Actually, what's happening is some of yeah. the ERG Conservatives are saying we don't care what the DUP is doing. We're still going to vote for the deal. Others are conflicted and they, they are thinking about prioritising unionism over Brexit. So there's a lot of sleepless nights for MPs, a lot of competing pressures. I don't think the ERG will vote as a coherent bloc. OK, well, there's going to be all the dynamics. And I love how you guys go through the alphabet soup of parties and, 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 and all of that. <laughs> Are we simply getting to a good old all-American election? I mean, when in doubt, vote, right? Yeah, I think, Tom, I think that's got to be the base case, Tom. I, I do think he's going to lose narrowly. You'll know that that then means the Ben Act kicked in. This is legislation passed by rebel MPs in Parliament. Boris will have to request an extension for three months. I think that extension will be granted by the European Union. They don't want to be blamed for no deal. And that will then create space for an early general election. I think I think that's indeed where this is heading. Well, what does Eurasia Group see within the polling? I mean, to me, John Farrell, the major change here has been Everyone sort of agrees that Mr. Johnson's got the wind behind him and he's actually doing better. He's held up. Than the poll. He's yeah. held up relative yeah. to the chaos of the last couple of months. And Mr. Tabby, you've got to say that Jeremy Corbyn, the leader of the opposition party, has really struggled to make any progress after the, over the last month or so, despite the losses that the prime minister has racked up. I agree. I agree. I think Labour's problem is it's a Corbyn problem, frankly. Many on his own side don't even want him in number 10. I mean, there's a lot of concern about what a Corbyn type 
would do in number 10 if he got the reins of power. But the Liberal Democrats have also been suffering. Joe Swinson, their leader, has committed the party to revoking the 2016 decision. That's lost them a lot of support. And actually what we're seeing is a lack of appetite now, both within Labour and within the Liberal Democrats, to face an early election, because it looks likely that, to- that that Boris may be able to deliver a majority. They're getting scared. They're mm-hmm. getting cold feet. Mitch Tupper, I've been taught and conditioned over the last three years, time and time and again, always to stress test and question every widely held assumption. And in the market at the moment, a widely held assumption is that the downside in sterling is limited after Saturday's vote, if that vote is a loss for the Prime Minister, because hard Brexit is now off the table. Talk to me about how confident you are that hard Brexit is actually off the table, that we've put that story to bed now. I think we need to clarify our terms. I think when you say hard Brexit, what we mean is a no-deal Brexit, UK crashing out of the European Union with no agreement in place. Look, I think that remains a risk. If Boris's deal does not go through Parliament, then he will be forced to request an extension for three months. That means at the end of those three months, there is another risk off a cliff edge. Now, Parliament may mobilise again. They may force the government into requesting another extension. At that point, maybe Europe won't have the appetite to extend again. If there's a general election, it looks good for Boris right now, but after he's not delivered Brexit yeah. in an extension, his numbers may start to drop. He may be in a minority government, maybe with Farage's party. All of these un- variables, these uncertainties, mean the no-deal risk remains on the table in three months' time. The number may have come down, but it still remains right. a risk. Midge, you have a, a, a visceral relationship with all of the stands. You're, of course, with Pakistan. Uh, but as you look at what's going on in Turkey and Syria, the tradition was of a Turkey to look to the West, to the EU, to the EC. And there's been changes of that over the year. Do you sense, over the years, I should say, do you sense with the latest battles for Mr. Erdogan that he's given up looking to Europe, he's given up looking to the West? I think, Tom, this is, this is again about Erdogan's domestic standing. I think Erdogan is in a difficult situation domestically. His power is ebbing, his control of the party ebbing. And that's forcing him, I think, to seek ways in which he can consolidate his power. Of course, adventures um, in the foreign policy sphere um, are, are one example, you know, very unorthodox economic policy is another example. I think there's a risk that he becomes much more erratic, that we're seeing some of that. I think there's a risk yeah. that, that continues as he, try, as he tries to consolidate his base domestically. It, is there within Turkey a coalesced secular opposition? Do they have an organiz, organized opposition to Mr. Erdogan in a more pro-Islamic party? No, I, I mean, I think there are, there are, of course, opposition parties. I think the problem is they're incoherent, they're unorganized. And, and frankly, through the centralization of power that Erdogan has implemented over the course of his decade in power, I mean, it becomes very, very hard for the opposition to gain any oxygen and gain any traction and gain yeah. any momentum. And I think that's we're seeing some of the manifestations yeah. of, those, of those problems now. Mishtama, great to catch up with you this morning. Mishtama Rahman, Eurasia Group Managing Director. John, the sleeper here is the IIF, not across town, but across the Northwest District, where the bankers are gathered to listen and review 
all that's going on. We've got a guest who's perfect for this, don't we? Looking forward to all of that coming up. And we do have a perfect guest for this morning's news flow. Torsten Slock joining us, Deutsche Bank Securities Chief Economist. Torsten, let's start with the immediate news flow. There was hope at the start of this year that we would have a rebound, a recovery in the global economy in the second half of the year. Now we're hoping for a a series of bottoming out, just some data that shows that we're bottoming out. And do you see that in the Chinese GDP data this morning, Torsten? It comes through at 6% for GDP, the lowest since the early 1990s. Just a slight downside surprise. What's your take, Torsten? Yeah, no, I mean, the trade war continues to weigh on the global economy. The trade war has been weighing on the U.S. economy. CapEx has been going down. Sentiment has been going down. The trade war has weighed particularly hard on Japan and Europe. And unfortunately, the data today shows that the trade war is also beginning to weigh now more on the Chinese economy. So the key issue, of course, and this is also be the issue for the IMF meetings, namely, what is the outlook for the trade war? And if this risk, is it going away? Is a phase one deal, is it a deal? Is this risk going to lower fears in corporate America, corporate Europe, corporate Asia? Because this continues to be the main issue, namely the trade war. It doesn't look like where we stand right now that we are bottoming out. Well, Torsten, we've got to ask a follow-up question because before we get into the trade war, we've got to have a discussion to what degree the slowdown in China is actually a product of the trade tension and to what extent it is a product of domestic forces really taking a hold of the economy. Which one is it? So in our view, I mean, the trade war has certainly played an important role, but uh, the Chinese economy has done uh, actually surprisingly well, even uh, despite the the trade war. Uh, We have had up until this point relatively solid numbers on the domestic front, but that's what we're seeing in the data today that maybe some of the issues in the export sector, maybe some of the issues on the trade war is indeed spreading to the domestic sector. So that's why the the fear one can have is that uh, we just don't see quite yet any signs of bottoming. We just see still uh, quite a number of reasons to be worried. Uh, even outside the trade war, but for the global outlook, it does make sense that the IMF WIO did downgrade growth the way that they did. Torsten, give us the guideline, the timeline rather, of tariffs. Where are we on the on the tariff continuum? Is there more to come, or can you say they're in place now? So this is a really important question because if the real issue at the moment is how are corporates thinking about this tariff risk, how are corporates yeah. around the world thinking about this uncertainty, we have now still yet a deadline with European automakers on November the 15th. We still have to have some certainty about what's going to happen with U.S. tariffs on December 15th. And we also have now talk about the delisting of Chinese companies and all these other issues that continue to be here. And also the other issues about, well, Will tariffs go away? Is that a precondition for the phase one deal? I mean, <clears throat> honestly, it looks more like all these yeah. things with the trade wall is, if anything, it's actually escalating rather than de-escalating because there are a lot of things that need to go away for things to start to get better. Yeah. If you're just joining us, Torsten Slack with us. He's with Deutsche Bank with Peter Hooper and David Fulkerts Landau. We're thrilled he could join us today. As you know, Torsten, within the three books that the IMF publishes, there's always that one chapter Falling rates, rising risks. This looks like Deutsche Bank could have written this for the IMF. It is Fulkerts Landau 101. Exactly how critical right now is the effect of these pernicious falling rates on our banking system and on our social system as well? So this is absolutely critical for investors at the moment because think about it. For the last 10 years, it has actually been relatively simple. 
when the risk-free rate goes down, meaning when the Fed funds rate or 10-year rates in the U.S. goes down, all you had to do was to go and hunt some yields and go and basically move further out the risk spectrum. This worked very well for the last 10 years. And for the quant models, if you ran regressions for the last 10 years, if you did any principal component analysis for the last 10 years, you would have come to the conclusion that lower risk-free rates, hey, then I should just go and buy some more risk. But the critical thing today is that if the risk-free rate goes down for the wrong reason, namely because we're having a recession, well, then you should no longer do what those quant models would have predicted for the last 10 years, because in that situation, then you should begin to worry about, well, then if we do have a recession, then you will see corporate default rates go up. You will see earnings begin to slow. And in that environment, you don't want to have any risky assets. So it either really is a very critical regime shift risk we're talking about here in terms of our Risk-free rate going down now, yeah. and it's just an innocent thing, or is there actually a real risk of having a recession? It's all still for stocks. The president of the ECB, Mario Draghi, has got one more meeting left. He used to say, and he said it time and time again, for rates to be higher in the future, they need to be lower now. Rates have been negative at the ECB since the summer of 2014. How important is it that actually they've been negative for too long? I want to talk about the timing here. There's an argument, I think, to say that just over a short period of time, you can have that short, short, sharp shock of having negative rates, and maybe that's productive. But is there an opposite argument that says basically that the longer you have negative rates, the harder it is to make the argument that they are actually helping? Absolutely, Jonathan, because look at Japan, who had had weak growth and had also now negative rates for a while. And Europe, of course, the sentiment consequences of negative rates. Honestly, if the central bank in any country sits and says the economic outlook is not really that great. I mean, if you're a corporate, uh, should you then say, well, great, let me go out and invest a lot in new factories and hiring a lot of people? Isn't there a risk that the sentiment effect, which is exactly what we're seeing uh, and most importantly in Europe, but also in Japan, that the sentiment risk really becomes ingrained. It becomes very deeply entrenched in how businesses and corporates think about the outlook. And this is the real fear here that this negative interest rates and the situation in Europe has now lasted for basically five years. Is this just temporary? Five years is a really long time that we've been in this situation, and that's the risk that many are now beginning to say, well, this could last potentially a lot longer. Torsten, just touch on the economic theory just to wrap this up, and I know we can get very much deep in the weeds on this, but the time value of money as a concept, the euro now is worth more than a euro in the future. And just that idea meant that we should be paid interest when we lend money to someone. Are we turning an age-old economic concept on its head? And if we're now saying that a euro now is worth less than a euro in the future, aren't we basically saying deflation's coming? Isn't that the only way to rationalise negative rates in bond markets? Absolutely. That's exactly how it's rationalised. I mean, another interpretation, of course, is to ask, well, why is it that the long rates are so low? Well, one reason for that is also global QE. And it is, of course, all the forward guidance from central banks that have tried to push long rates down. So the term premium, meaning the compensation you get for buying duration has now been pushed down so much. And there's a huge academic debate and in markets, a big debate about why is this happening and the central bank signaling all the dovishness that we are witnessing at the moment from all these central banks, both in the G3, but also in many emerging markets. That dovishness is certainly weighing very, very heavily on the outlook for long rates. And that is exactly also to your point, Jonathan, also therefore beginning to weigh on, well, if I have to get used to low or negative interest rates even for a lot longer, well, then that also begins to have, I mean, many people in academia are really getting a headache in finance courses over this issue because it really is turning the whole world upside down. Torsten, it's great to catch up with you to get your thoughts. The academic debate rages on. Deutsche Bank's chief economist here in New York.
in Washington here. We're thrilled to have in our studios during these meetings John Hudak, who has one of the toughest, most interesting remits at Brookings. He is head of government studies, their senior fellow of governance studies that at Brookings. John, thrilled to have you in the studio uh, today. Here's the question that's come up three times in my, my quick trip down here. What do Republican legislators do when they have a view, they have an opinion, but it's so diametrically opposite of their constituents? It seems to be a huge dilemma right now. It's a huge dilemma. There are so many Republicans who right now are looking at this president and looking at this president's behavior and saying to themselves, if a Democrat were doing this, I would be screaming for impeachment. But my supporters back home, a lot of my supporters back home still support this president. And so because their elections right. are tied, they're supporting the president. You are a student of history. That's part of your charm here over to Connecticut and Vanderbilt. And my simple question, and you know, I was into this, folks. Like, to be honest, I was flat on my back in my parents' family room watching Watergate addictively a million years ago. Was it the same conundrum in Watergate? I would suggest it was different then. Uh, it was a bit different. Now, it's important to remember that as the impeachment inquiry was happening during Watergate, uh, there were a lot of Republicans who stuck by the president continuously until the bombshell tapes dropped. Uh, in this case, we don't have tapes. We have the president and the White House chief of staff doing what the Watergate tapes did for us to admit right. and show us that there has been criminal activity and abuses of power. But the difference is, in 1974, Barry Goldwater went to the White House and said, Mr. President, we don't yeah, have the votes Barbara to keep Connable. you. Yeah, that's Barbara right. Connable, the House Ways and Means. We don't have the votes to keep you in office, but no Republican is going to do that this year. Okay, that's the great history lesson. Let's slam it to the president. And this is our governance that we believe any official has right to representation within the governance and the rights that the president have has does he getting the right advice is he to the phrase which is easy to say at our address here at Bloomberg is he properly lawyered up the president is getting terrible advice or if he's getting good advice he's not listening to any of it what we see right now is Rudy Giuliani who is a halfwit of a lawyer uh, giving him only advice that is serving his own personal interests and the advisors around him in the White House have to be telling him something different than he's doing no lawyer in this town, maybe except for Rudy Giuliani, would tell the president that his current uh, effort is an effective one and a meaningful one. How do you, and folks, I say this just, you know, I'll be honest, I was sitting in a in a, a, a lovely little emporium uh, with a beverage of my choice, we go. watching Washington, thank you, John, took you a watching to Washington, watch Washington. You have to see it to believe it. To my audience internationally and coast to coast, you have to be here to observe it. John Hudak, you live this every day. What do you presume the coming days and weeks look like? You know, the coming days and weeks, I think, are going to look a lot like what we've seen over the past couple of weeks, and that is the House bringing in witnesses, escalating this impeachment inquiry, gathering additional evidence that supports the idea that the president has abused his powers and has committed the types of actions that are impeachable. All the while, the president is going to continue to spin yeah. out of control. He's not responding to this in a well way. He's not responding to this in a politically rational way. He's, he's literally losing it. Very quickly here, why won't the House vote on this? I mean, what, what is the easy 
digestible Friday morning answer to why the House won't affect this process forward? Are they just waiting for more evidence? They're waiting for more evidence. There's there's two votes, right? One is the actual impeachment vote, which will come after a series of witnesses. But this demand that the House vote to officially open an impeachment inquiry will offer the Democrats no benefit. It's not as if the White House is going to start complying with subpoenas if Pelosi Uh, announces this vote. She's not the political amateur that the president is, and she knows how this plays out. Very good. John Hudick, too short a visit. Thank you so much. He's senior fellow governance studies at Brookings and really steeped into the dynamics within the city of uh, what affects the nation. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.